what you just you know touched upon it it's 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 not just that children enjoyed the books because they were so different from what was out there in the marketplace it's it's that people of different ages and and parent i enjoyed reading dr seuss to my kids i loved reading the books to my kids you know so it, 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 he wrote it for kids but he understood what parents wanted as well he had that understanding mm-hmm. well and and the other thing that made his books the books parents wanted to read is partly at least at first it was timing because if you look at, at what cat in the hat was competing with um the cat in the hat was meant to be uh it was meant to kick Dick and Jane out of the classroom. Those, those sort of horrific, terrible, boring, mundane reading primers with Dick and Jane and their lives of quiet desperation that, uh, that Seuss thought was the meanest thing you could do to a child. So those were the books that kids didn't want to read. And more than anything, too, parents just didn't want to read them to kids because, you know, they, were, they had that repetitive cadence that we all can remember. Look, Jane, look, look, look at the ball. The ball is red, red, red. <laughs> you know, just, it's repetitive and it's doing everything you know, pedagogically correct. Um, but it's just, you know, it's a terrible story. And as Sue says, I, you know, that I, I wouldn't do that to a kid. So one of the, one of the things that made Cat in the Hat such a game changer was you compare that book to the reading primers kids had before. And parents were like, I, I want to read this book to my kid. Uh, so that was part of what made that book such a game changer. But Seuss was aware that, you know, parents were the ones reading these books to kids. I'll, I think all of us have had the experience of our kid dragging the same book off the shelf every night in a row for a hundred nights straight. And you finally hide it up on the top shelf and tell them, you know, that we've lost the book. We'll have to go look for it. So you can read something different. Finally. Um, You know, the, the thing about Seuss books is they just, they don't get old. Um, And again, partly it's because of that respect for the reader that, that Seuss had, Um, you know, his books are fun. The rhymes are, are clever. The cadence is easy. It's um, like, as I was saying earlier, you don't have to stretch to figure out how the rhymes work. How, he's not he's not forcing you to fumble with a word to make it fit the, the rhyme scheme and the cadence and the rhythm. Um, that makes it as a reader, when you're reading it out loud to a child, that makes it ve- very easy to read. And that doesn't always happen with some children's books. So, so there's a lot going on in the Dr. Seuss books that makes it attractive uh, to both the reader, the child, and the reader's parent. And, also, and the, the bonus in that is it's also educator approved because a lot of those books use those, those pedagogies, those approved reading lists that educators approve of. In addition to the success of Dr. Seuss's own books, um, was the whole beginner's book project um, a, a success? You know, when, you know, I was just fascinated when I read the book. Um, you know, I had this, I imagined the cat in the hat visiting the Berenstein Bears <laughs> that connection that would have been like you know it was such a you know tight connection between the Berensteins and Theodore Jessup yeah you'd love to have the, the crossover of those characters almost like DC and Marvel kind of right. characters right exactly yeah. right was 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 I mean was that project successful the, the project was very successful and beginner books still exist today because they were that successful um you know, beginner books was a, an imprint with, with a motivation. And that motivation was to educate kids, to get them to read, to give them books they want to read. It was, it was continuing the mission of the cat in the hat, the things that Ted had learned, that Dr. Seuss had learned in the cat in the hat. Um, 
So those beginner books used though, you know, first of all, what makes them, what makes them legit, if you will, is they use those educator approved word lists. Um, that's part of the strength of those books. And that's one of the reasons teachers have no problem handing them to children. They're using a tight vocabulary list that educators approve of. Um, and you can't deviate from that list. And that was usually the hardest, the hardest part of it. So after the cat in the hat came out and Seuss creates the beginner book imprint, he's writing books for beginner books, but more than anything, he's editing them and he's recruiting. He, one of his big tasks was to go out there and find great writers and artists for kids. And as you were saying, that's where the Berenstains came in. He like saw the talent that Stan and Jan Berenstain had uh, and they loved working with him, even as he slightly terrified them. Um, because he did have that, you know, really determined work ethic. And they tell, they tell a great story about, you know, they, their first book for him, I think, was The Big Honey Hunt. And, um, and they tell the story about coming in to meet with him the very first day, and he had all their pages pinned up on the wall as he did to his own books, and just nitpicked them, you know, just picked it apart. And they thought, oh, my God, this is terrible. And he gets done just telling them everything that's wrong with it. And then says, we got a great book going here. You know, you should be really happy with this. So, and, uh, and they had this conversation as they got in the, in the, on the train to go home saying, I, I, you know, does he even like us? And, and I think it was Jan who said, you know what? The work is what really matters to him, I think. I think that's what's most important to him, which was exactly right. And so that was, you know, that was sort of the driving that the driving force behind beginner books was Dr. Seuss, making sure those books followed the plot, had a plot, you know, the Frank Capra method, make sure you've got a story, make sure you're telling a story, giving them something interesting. And it did get to the point where they, you know, they had a big sheaf of, of sort of rules they had for these books, which was um, don't show anything on the page that's not referenced in the text, for example. Um, you know, if a, if, if a character's holding an apple and you don't have the word apple in the text, you can't draw the apple in there. You have to reference that in the text. So there was, there was a lot of interrelationship between words and pictures. And that again was very important. Um, that's the way the young brains interpret those words of the images. I mean, they're, they're doing a lot of really heavy lifting. There's a lot of work going on in those books. Well, what was the, um, you, you describe in detail the relationship between um, Dr. Seuss and his wife. And one gets the impression that, um, you know, this, I don't know if it's the support, really a partnership that yeah. he could not have become Dr. Seuss with, without his wife. Is that, is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Uh, first of all, she was the one sitting next to him in class in Oxford who said, what are you in here trying to be a college professor for? You need to be drawing for a living. So you know, right there, she already gets some big credit for that. Um, but she was his first and best editor. Um, she was the one more than anybody else who was permitted to call baloney on him. Um, you know, every draft went to Helen first. And Helen was a really talented writer in her own right. At one point in World War II, when he was serving in the army, she was paying the bills by writing children's books for Disney, uh, for example. So, so, you know, really had an intuitive sense for, for all the things that were important to Dr. Seuss, an intuitive sense for plot and for character even. There's, there's a great moment um, when he was working on The Grinch, for example, and he's sitting out by the pool and she comes out with the pages and says, this, this isn't right. And, you know, and he's just, he, he doesn't want to have that conversation, but he knows that she's probably correct. And she points out to him that there's some places here, the text doesn't quite work. And then you're starting to draw the who's uh, too small. 
Uh, you know, she says they look like bugs. And he said, well, well, they are bugs. And she said, no, they're not. They're people. Uh, and, you know, and, he, and he knew he knew she was right. So it was back to the drawing board. But Helen was the only one that could do that to him. But she was so important and he valued her talent so much that when he does start the beginner book imprint, uh, beginner books was sort of the brainchild of Bennett Cerf's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, but when he forms that company with her, um, he also insists that Helen be brought on board as a full equal partner in the business. Now, partly that was as well. So if they ever had to outvote anybody, he always knew it was going to go two to one, but also because he knew she was good and she went out there and was immediately recruiting people as well. And she was just as much a stickler for those, those rules as anybody else. And, you know, they would write these just long letters to, you know, authors saying, I don't like the way you've portrayed the moon here. It looks too dusty and it, it looks, you know, it's uninteresting. And, you know, the, the author wrote back and said, you know, actually, the moon is really dusty and kind of uninteresting. She said, well, but, you know, it, I don't care if it's factually correct. It's uninteresting. But finally, they published the book. So so she was a real stickler as well, uh, just as much as he was. So definitely, um, you know, his genius um, fed off of hers and she fed into it and really gave him what he needed. Um, you know, not just paying the bills when he needed, but also gave him that first read, which is something authors and writers really, really need an honest opinion uh, from someone who loves you and can let you down gently, which is the hardest thing in all to do. So, um, so obviously in the news today, you have the Dr. Seuss enterprise, which if I understand correctly, is not connected to the family in any way. Uh, I don't think so. I think it was, I think, I think it was initially started by um, Audrey, his second wife. Um, uh, She passed away. So I don't think, I don't think the daughters are affiliated with it at all, but his wife did, did start the company. Got it. And, and and just quoting what what they say here is, is they removed the six books uh, because they portrayed certain groups of, of people in ways that are hurtful and, and wrong and, and Dr. Seuss's stepdaughter, who you in detail described this evolving relationship that turned into a very, very um, important relationship for him, uh, came out and said there was not a bone of real racism or anti-Semitism in stepfather. However, she understood why this was being done. And, you know, we have the counterculture and, you know, the, the cancel culture and the whole right. blue. Um, and, and you reference throughout the book, you know, women, I mean, page 31 women, uh, you know, page 93, relationship with African-Americans, 116, you, you obviously go into the Mulberry and the Chinese, the Japanese is the fifth column, et cetera, et cetera. So do you, do you understand this decision? Um, and do you think you think that this is like an opportunity to really, you know, um, present the complete, complex picture of someone like Dr. Seuss? Yeah, you know, I, I think Lee Agree's response, Dr. Seuss's stepdaughter, was was the right one um, because she, you know, she she was she was defending him even as she said, "I think it's probably the right decision to do this," um, partly because. Um, you know, I, I'm always, I'm always uneasy policing books, whether it's Huckleberry Finn or Tales from the Crypt. Um, but something like a Dr. Seuss book, generally, you know, a, a five-year-old is reading this, and even if you're reading it to your child, you're not necessarily going to have the conversation about the problematic image 
Um, and so they don't understand. They don't have, it, it's easier to discuss Huckleberry Finn with a room full of junior high school students or even fifth graders. Whereas a Dr. Seuss book, uh, you may not have a kid say, you know, what's with the portrayal of the, you know, the people with their eyes at a slant here. Like they may not necessarily understand that. Um, so I, so I understand where DSE is coming from on this. Um, you know, it's not consistent with, with the brand that Dr. Seuss is. And, and it's interesting that of the six book, five of them were actually writ, pub, written and published before publication of Cat in the Hat. Um, and that's the moment that we sort of, you know, think of him as Dr. Seuss, you know, the advocate for reading for children. These books were the, the first the five of those six were written between 1937 and 1955. Um, and the bulk of them actually are right there in the 50s because the problematic imagery you've got in them is primarily Asians. Um, and this is a time when, you know, Charlie Chan is portrayed by white actors in pancake right. makeup and, you know, with overly slanted eyes and terrible pigeon English. So, you know, it, it was reflective of the culture, um, which doesn't make it right. But for Seuss, it was, um, you know, I, I said at one point that he was being pictographically lazy um, because to him, I, I don't know that he even recognized that this portrayal was hurtful because to him, this it's, it's, it's graphic cosplay. Um, this is the way exotic cultures look um, to him in, in the same way he would draw millionaires in striped trousers and monocles and every elected official has a top hat on, right. you know, to him, that's the shorthand. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not even sure he registered that, you know, that was a big no, no. I think he's like, it's, it's, it, it's an, it's an exotic culture. This is the way it looks. Um, it, it, his white privilege is undoubtedly showing there. Um, Seuss gets better. I mean, it, it, you know, it's over the arc of his life, he's got some problematic work in the twenties and his advertising work primarily toward African-Americans at that time. Um, you know, he, he evolves. I think he gets, I think he gets better. I think he understands are hurtful. Even later in life, he says, you know, I, I, I'd look at that and, you know, a lot of that stuff. And he even is talking about his World War II cartoons. He says, you know, I, I thought it was funny at the time today. I'm just, I'm, I'm not so sure. And this is in, you know, the, the 70s, early 80s. I mean, he, he understood even in his lifetime that some of that stuff was problematic. So, so I, 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 I understand where DSE is coming from. My, my official response on that is I get it. Okay. Um, even if, you know, even if it's some, something of an imperfect solution, I, I understand. I, I get it. I understand where they're coming from on that. Okay. Okay. Um, I, th I think you even actually referenced that, that that there were actually changes that he made on, on, on in the subject of the Chinese. He changed the, the 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 phrase that he used so that it would be less offensive. So as you said, he he he, he had this awareness that some of his work needed needed to be fixed. Yeah, yeah. Like in Mulberry Street, for example, it started off using the word Chinaman. Um, and it was, you know, very yellow pigment used with a pigtail. Later on, he removed the pigtail. He changed the pigmentation. I think he called him a Chinese boy then later at that point. Uh, so yeah, he was, he was going back and trying to fix, trying to fix it, but, um, really to no avail. Okay. And, and do you think that kids really, um, pick up on this? Is this, I mean, obviously there's, it's interesting because when, when we used to read uh, the book, so, you know, coming from our, our traditional Jewish background, we always mm -hmm. imagine perhaps that Mr. Brown and Mr. Black were, you know, maybe the Amish thought they were Amish. We thought they were maybe Hasidic Jews. <laughs> now, so, I, you know, everybody, I guess, has their own interpretation. So, you know, you, you think that, that you know, removing the, the books is, 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 is something that, you know, will help 
children? I mean, is, is it helpful for children? Like the children? Well, I, I, I think it is because you have to, you have to, you know, remember the audience is larger than just me. Uh, you know, it's larger than just the white kids. I mean, for somebody like me, when I read that as a kid, I didn't think about it. Right. Um, if I was, if I was an Asian American, I might've thought about that. And I might've thought, geez, what's, what's going on? This, this doesn't look like me. This doesn't look like my uncles, uh, what's going on. So I, you know, I think it's being, I think it's responding to, to that need that Dr. Seuss has read, uh, you know, not internationally for sure, but even in, you know, here in the United States, um, you know, it's read by Asians, Asian Americans and Hispanics and blacks. Uh, and you know it, it's read by a lot of people, and so it's it's easy from the white perspective to just be like, I don't I don't understand what the hubbub is. Um, but when you're one of those groups that's portrayed that way, uh, you you probably tend to notice. Um, in, in in terms of Dr. Seuss and um, the Jewish community, the Jewish people, I think you actually mentioned in, in your book that I think it was when he was at Oxford, he said that for a year and a half. People assume that I was Jewish because of my black hair and big nose. And his big nose, yeah. <laughs> did, 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 did he reference Jews in his works? Was there any, I, I don't recall you writing, there was no accusation of anti-Semitism. No, and in fact, his, most of the, his work that explicitly references Jewish people is his World War II cartoons. And some of them are stunning. I mean, we talked a little bit earlier about the one with Lindbergh, with the American Eagle, with the sign that said, I'm half Jewish. Um, you know, when he's, he's got just a, a terrifying cartoon of, um, I think it's Pierre Laval uh, with Hitler, and they're in a forest and their arms are draped around each other. And they're singing together. And it's all about, you know, it's, it's a shot at Pierre Laval for, you know, being in bed with Hitler, but they're in a forest and in the trees all around them, you see feet hanging from the trees. And to make sure that the point is made, the word, Jew is written across these. I mean, he is, he is not pulling any punches with that. Uh, I mean, he, he, he suspected the atrocities even then uh, of what was going on and, and did see, um, actually, when he was uh, in Europe at one point, went into an abandoned concentration camp. And even then, seeing the evidence there, I mean, the mind boggled at that. He just couldn't comprehend that he was sitting in a, in a, in a, you know, probably a laboratory where they were experimenting on people and just couldn't wrap his head around that, you know, people would do that to one another. So, so his, his explicit experience with, you know, this work that, uh, you know, takes on anti-Semitism and talks about the Jewish community tends to really happen in those, in those, uh, in those World War II cartoons. And, and I, I've said this before, but I'll just keep saying they're really powerful, really powerful cartoons. Okay, we're going to hopefully when we edit this, show some of them. I've, I've taken a look at some of them. And they really yeah. Did you find the one I just referenced with the the tree? Yes. With the tree? Yes, I did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's it's, it's, it's horrifying. Yeah, it's horrifying. And, and and you'll know when I say this. It's horrifying and gorgeous. I mean, it it just it, right. it gives me goosebumps. It it's it's yeah. really effective. It, it it's a terrifying cartoon. Okay. Um. What what's next in your plans? I mean, we you know you have. <laughs> You know, so you know, icons. You know, the yeah, I, you know, I, I, I don't have, I next? don't have one right now. This is, it's been two years since Who's came out, almost two years. This is the longest I have ever gone since 2006, I think, without knowing what my next project is. I just, uh, I don't know at the moment. It's a matter of finding uh, fit, you know, a good fit and and interest. It's one of those uh, when you tend to write about 
big names and iconic names, everybody's got a subject they want you to do. <laughs> you know, I get inundated with people. Here's this would be a great book. Everybody wanted me to do Stan Lee, but I knew there were also I think three Stan Lee bios coming yeah. out close to yeah. the same time. Um, so I I don't know. Um, I'm as anxious to find out what I'll be new, doing next as anybody. Okay, wonderful. Again, um, becoming Dr. Seuss. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, it's just um, deeply researched, highly entertaining. Really gives you a, a a sense of the complexity of a person who was, uh, as you had mentioned earlier, um, you know, throughout the entire 20th century, lived through the entire span. A person who you know evolved and was complex. And um, thank you very very much. Um, this has been has been wonderful. I, I can go on forever. <laughs> I I can too, Ari. I, I would you know we'll we'll keep after you shut this down. We'll keep talking till midnight here. Very good.